You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hello, Chris. Hello. Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Right now, in fact, just after this bit. Ready, Chris? Yes, in the words of Jim Lovell, if you were an academic and not a real-life astronaut, but also a fictional version of a real-life astronaut who is also Tom Hanks. Houston, we have a fact. Four facts, in fact. Yeah, no, yes. I mean, you, you often do the singular, but actually it's four. I mean, people are going to think we're just going to talk about one thing for the entire show. Uh, well, not if they've listened to it before. That's true. That's true. Good. Right. Well, four facts. Let's crack on. Handpick from the Institute's... Bleh. Fuck. Handpick from the Institute's fact library and delivered fresh to your ears. It's the first fact of the show. Henry VIII had a drowning boy. I will say in my notes, I've actually had to write Henry VIII because... You just say Henry V. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I know I'll do it on air. <laughs> so with, with that, Henry VIII was king of England in the 1500s. Uh, he's famous for basically killing off a bunch of his wives and other people. Uh, then he started the Church of England because the Catholic Church wouldn't let him remarry. Possibly one of the few things the Catholic Church did right since he was known for killing wives. But very little is known about Henry's early life, as in when he was a child before he was a grown-up and started doing king stuff. What do we know, Chris? Throughout the various history times, princes of European royal families had what are called whipping boys, who were friends of the prince who would be punished in the prince's stead. Uh, the idea was that because the prince's status exceeded that of their tutor, the tutor was lawfully unable to punish the prince. And it was thought that seeing a friend punished instead would provide a comparable motivation to not be naughty again. A whipping was a popular punishment back then, hence the term whipping boy. Right, yeah. So uh, so they, they hurt the friends of the prince instead of the prince themselves in the hopes that somehow that would teach them a valuable lesson and not instill violence in them from an early age. Seems logical. Uh, so did Henry have one of these friends then? He did. Henry VIII, before he was the eighth, and just Henry, was a rambunctious youth by all accounts who reportedly terrorised his tutors. And so his whipping boy, a noble son named Samuel Evesham, ended up being whipped several times a day. Oh, right. OK, so standard whipping boy, like all other princes. Uh, what, what changed then? Well, when it became obvious to Henry's tutors that seeing Samuel whipped wasn't enough to make him behave, they began exacting more and more extreme punishments on the boy in the hopes of getting the prince to mend his ways. These included things like pushing Samuel into beds of stinging nettles, dragging Samuel behind a galloping horse, and on one occasion holding Samuel underwater just until before the point of drowning. Hence the term drowning boy that I use at the top of the fact. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, it's not very nice for this Samuel guy, but I mean, if you're a whipping boy, I guess, I guess, I guess that's, you know, par for the course, but like. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like their job was to be whipped. They were friends of the prince who, should the prince misbehave, they'd be punished. It wasn't like they had to like follow the prince around 
all day during their lessons on the off chance that they'll misbehave. It wasn't a, a, a job that they had. No, and it only works really if they are the friend of the prince because, you know, like exactly, you say, like, yeah. If it's yeah. just some random kid who they drag in every time you misbehave. I mean, I probably care if like somebody whipped some random person every time I did something bad. But, you know, a prince, a, a, a member of a royal family, they think differently, don't they? I guess they do, uh, particularly if you're Henry VIII. Or pre-eighth Henry. Yes. It, it, it must be said, actually, that he wasn't like just, he was just Henry. He wasn't like Henry I. And then he, as he got older, he became Henry VIII. And there was like Henry I when he was born. And then like a Pokemon, he evolved into Henry II when he gained enough experience. Um, so... <laughs> I wonder what type Henry VIII would have been if he was a Pokemon. Please at us on Twitter with your own suggestions of what type Henry VIII would be if he were a Pokemon. And indeed, any other um, member of the royal family. Or any other actual real person ever. Uh, so all of this stuff that happened to the drowning boy, whipping boy, being set on fire boy, all of that, uh, didn't stop make, didn't make Henry stop being a shit then? No. And unfortunately for Henry's tutors and, I suppose, Samuel himself, none of these punishments got through to the prince. In fact, it's believed that Henry actually enjoyed seeing Samuel punished, that he misbehaved on purpose in order to see Samuel punished and even suggested some of the more outlandish punishments himself. Oh, God, right. So vindictive little shit then, isn't he? Uh, yes, um, he was a bit of a, a sadist before Dessard. Yeah, pre-Dessard pre sadist. Um, it's not nice, is it? Like, this whole situation is not nice. We knew Henry VIII was an arsehole, but it's, it seems like when we look back at his childhood, we're, we're, we're getting a glimpse in, into how quite how much of a prick he really was. Um, so, so the stuff that happened to his whipping boy slash drowning boy, um, you've mentioned... He got dragged behind a horse. That's pretty shit. Um, was that or drowning? Were these, were these the most extreme or outlandish punishments exacted upon the boy? Well, eventually Henry's tutors realised that traditional violent punishments like whipping or horse dragging or drowning weren't doing the trick. So they had to resort to more and more unusual punishments. One time they strapped Samuel above Henry's bed overnight so that the prince would have to look at him hanging there. Oh, God. They forced Samuel to imitate Henry for a day, repeating his words and actions in that kind of playground way, hoping that it would be really annoying. I mean, that is really annoying. But if, you, if, if you're basically torturing someone to be forced to have to do that, I feel like if Henry enjoys someone being tortured anyway, then then he it would it would have a different it would hit different, Chris. <laughs> um, I don't think it would. I think there's no pleasure in seeing somebody punished in that because all they're doing is what you do, and that'll be more annoying than I suppose. Yeah, and, and also also the I mean, if I was the drowning boy or the whipping boy, and I got a day where I was just told, well, we're not going to drown you this time. We're just going to like make you copy everything Henry says, I'd lean into that. It's funny you should say that because another one of the punishments they used was that they treated Samuel for a day better than Henry. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's just a reaction to his, his own ego, and I love that. 
Yeah, that one actually worked for a while. Yeah, I think I think um, just sort of having uh, having a build up to a punishment, and Henry Henry just going, "Oh, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna suggest this one today," and he spends all night thinking, "Oh, I'm gonna gonna tell him to." I don't know, cut him up into little pieces or something. And and that would somewhat defeat the purpose because then he's dead and they won't be able to do anything else to him. Yeah, but like, I mean, all, all right. Well, I mean, he, he can think up more devious punishments before death than I can. So I, I guess I guess he wins. Um, like, so, so it would come to punishment time and they'd go, right, we're not going to do that. And then he'd go, oh, but I've, I've just thought up this great punishment. And they'll go, no, no. That's your punishment. It's not getting, not getting your way. And actually, I think that's that's more clever than anything else. And then to add insult to injury, they treat they 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 then actually just treat him nicer than Henry VIII. I mean, that's genius. Uh, this whole whipping boy thing is very interesting, Chris. Though, like, uh, just outside of Henry and his eighthness later on, obviously, um, does the practice itself has that survived into any form in any form into modern times? Uh, did the current print princes have their own whipping boys? Uh, well, in the centuries since Henry VIII, corporal punishment has largely been abandoned. But the practice of punishing a friend in place of a prince has survived, albeit in more contemporary ways. The current princes, Winston and Harvey, I think they're called, did have uh, whipping boys, although whipping boys isn't really an accurate term now because they weren't whipped. Punishment pals. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the alliteration better. So yeah, let's go with that. Uh, so if uh, whatever their names were, Waldo and Hubert misbehaved, their chastened chums would be made to do things like jog laps around Buckingham Palace, write lines like "I shall not ride Grandma's corgis" one hundred times, or they might have been banned from playing PlayStation. Ever wanted to hear something fun and interesting about America so you can convince your friends it's not all bad over there? Now's your chance. There have almost been some very strange questions on American visa forms. Uh, a lot of Western countries like to make it particularly difficult for people to just turn up and help stimulate their economy for some reason. Uh, America's one of the most extreme in this respect. They've tried to build walls, close borders, clamp down on citizenship, and long-term visitors now have to go through a grueling process just to make sure they're there for the right reasons, like racism, hunting, being millionaires, being white, killing school children, and other popular American pastimes. Uh, the questions on these forms are notoriously difficult, but I'm not aware of the questions that didn't make it onto the form. What's the deal, Chris? So the questions asked on visa forms and in visa interviews are designed to ensure that visitors to countries are there for legitimate reasons and not for crime reasons. Over the last couple of decades, questions have been added which are intended to combat various perceived threats, most notably terrorism, which led to the infamous are you a terrorist question that has cropped up on a lot of visa forms? Yeah, yeah. I mean, despite violence being kind of kind of their thing over there, they do try and limit the amount of people wanting to do bad things in their country. So in the US, the Visa Question Committee is, as its name suggests, tasked with generating potential visa questions. And they have recently released a list of the questions they have rejected. 
Uh, what sort of questions were they planning to ask but didn't then? So some of the rejected questions concern potential threats that were ultimately deemed too outlandish or unlikely to need a place on the visa form. Some of these include, have you ever reanimated the dead intended to curb the spread of a zombie apocalypse? Oh, okay, right. I was going to ask. <laughs> or perhaps catch necromancers before they enter the country. Yes. I mean, I, I, I think I would be a little concerned if anyone said yes to that question. Um, I mean, obviously it didn't make it in, but if it did make it in, it's not so much that I'd be concerned that that person had reanimated the dead. It'd more be that, 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 that uh, assuming they're not lying, that they have successfully reanimated the dead and that this is actually possible and that we're, we're kind of behind on science. Um, that would be more of a worry than the actual person themselves, I think. Um, another is, or was, what is your favourite thing about being from Earth intended to ferret out aliens as in extraterrestrials, not, you know, people from Mexico? They've already got a wall for that, or part of a wall anyway. Right, yes, okay. So so, so they're assuming that uh, the aliens are are going to just fess up and say, actually, I'm not from Earth, if the question is answered, if they do have to, they do come across that question on the form, then, but that, that also assumes that, yeah, that's a bit stupid, Chris, isn't it? It's not, it's not a particularly clever question. Uh, well, these were rejected questions. Right, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to analyse them too much. <laughs> uh, but also, um, perhaps the reasoning was that if you ask somebody who is from Earth what their favourite thing about being from Earth is, they're likely to respond, I don't know. But if you asked an alien trying to pretend they're from Earth, they might be, you know, overly specific. Like, oh, I love the oxygen-rich atmosphere and the slight tilt in axis, which enables a varied climate and seasons. Another one was, you're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden you look down and see a tortoise. It's crawling towards you. You reach down and you flip the tortoise over on its back. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over. But it can't. Not without your help. But you're not helping. Why is that? You can't tell me there are androids trying to get into fucking America. Well, that was, again, rejected, Piper. And intended to catch potential replicants before they could enter the country and, you know, poke people's eyes out and let loose doves on city rooftops. All right. Um, so, <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm not um, aware of the process involved in deciding which questions go in and which ones don't. Uh, why do some get rejected then? Uh, well, obviously, because some are a bit too out there to really catch the kind of subversives you don't want coming into the country. But some were rejected because they obviously were aimed at keeping specific individuals out of the country for reasons personal to the various committee members. So there were rejected questions like, did you know that placing a towel on a deck chair is generally considered to reserve it for the owner of the towel? See, I, I don't like questions like that, Chris, because like in asking the question, you're giving that person the information. So you would obviously go, yes, yes, I did know that. So they wouldn't weed anyone out, would they? Well, possibly not. Again, rejected. 
But clearly the idea here is that somebody has had their deck chair, well, not their deck chair, but a deck chair which they believed they'd reserved taken from them by another holiday maker on holiday. And now they want to keep that particular holiday maker out of America so they can't steal good American deck chairs. <laughs> okay, well, this is getting good now. Okay, um, so what, what, other, what other people have they tried to keep out? Another rejected question was, why would you pretend to be bad at pool when you're actually really good at pool? Yeah, well, I think that's fair enough. No one wants pool sharks in America or in any country. And the rather forward... Did you fuck my wife? I mean, presumably you'd have to sign the question at the end, like with your own name, just so they know who you are. Oh, well, some of these weren't on the form. Some of these would be asked in the, the little interview they do when you're actually passing into the country. Oh, okay. Okay. So so this is, uh, but this is still a rejected question. It wasn't one that was actually asked. That's what the fact is about, yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem with that question, uh, besides you know, being completely irrelevant to national security, etc. Is that if it were asked in a visa interview, it would be impossible to tell whether it was part of the interview or if the interviewer themselves were querying whether you'd had sexual relations with their wife. Okay, so what what we've discussed so far, Chris, as you're painfully aware, is the stuff that was rejected on the American visa forms. Um, what are the strangest questions that have been kept? on these forms in the past. When Donald Trump was still president of America, one of the visa questions was known as the Trump trolley problem. It was basically a version of the trolley problem, the famous moral thought experiment, in which every person, even you, is Donald Trump. So it would be like, you're Donald Trump and you're driving a trolley when you see that there are five Donald Trumps on the track ahead. You can switch tracks to avoid the five Donald Trumps, but that would put you on a collision course with another Donald Trump. Do you, Donald Trump, keep your course and kill five Donald Trumps or make the choice to switch tracks and kill one Donald Trump? Right, that's in, that is interesting because, but, I mean, obviously it's... Um... It's uh, designed to weed out people who want to assassinate the president. But either option assassinates the president. Yes, but I suppose they want to weed out the kind of people who would only assassinate one president rather than five presidents at once. It's weird though, Chris. <laughs> it's weird. Um, it is weird, yes. Another question that has remained in the visa interview since George W. Bush's presidency is, a terrorist says what? I nearly didn't understand what you said then. Um, so, but then I realised, and then I thought, I'm not going to ask the obvious question. I really hope she would. In, <laughs> yeah, but I've got, I've got to look out for these things, Chris. But because, it, like I say, it won't be the first time that's happened in this podcast. Well, fortunately, that means you would be able to gain access to America. Yes. Oh wait, no, I don't actually want to go. To be honest, can I, can I transfer my citizenship to someone else? Uh, you're aware that a visa is just for visiting, right? Yeah, it's all very confusing. I mean, it's not. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, okay. Well, so if I got in, but I didn't want it, can I just go, well, Chris, you go. So if you didn't want to go, why would you have gone? Well, why, why, would, have I, why would I have applied for the visa? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is actually a very good question. 
It is a very good question. One that should perhaps be on the visa form. <laughs> question. If you don't want to come in, why are you here? <laughs> so do you... <laughs> So do any other countries have or, or have had strange visa questions? Yes. The visa form to get into the Soviet Union had an essay portion. A thousand words on the merits of Marxism-Leninism. Oh, Jesus. Right. So it's basically like socialist A-level. The UK visa interview used to include a question about chips. Chips? Chips. Yes. Or fries for our American or North American listeners. Okay. Visitors were asked what condiments they were planning on having on their chips during their stay in Britain, because it was believed that criminals, terrorists, and other subversive types were more likely to put something weird on their chips, like mayonnaise or mustard. I definitely. This is frustrating because I've definitely put mayonnaise on my chips before. Are you a terrorist, Piper? You dodged the question earlier, but you've you've. You've tipped your hand now, Piper. Now everyone knows you're one of them terrorists. Not all mayonnaise chip spreaders are terrorists, Chris. No, and that is perhaps why this question used to be on the visa interview and is now not. Because it wasn't actually very good at catching criminals or terrorists. No, so what you're saying is, is if, I, if, if no matter how I answer that question, it doesn't say whether or not I'm a terrorist. So therefore, it, it tracks that I may or may not be a terrorist, which is where we were before. So thank you very much. So what you're saying is you may or may not be a terrorist. You're not denying being a Wait, terrorist, no. Piper. You're just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, oh, God, I've got to be on the news. Um, <laughs> right, so let's uh, let's get into hypotheticals, Chris. Um if you if you owned a country of your own, which I'm sure you'd love, uh, what would you ask anyone wanting to visit that country on your own visa form? I would ask potential visitors, visitors to my country, who's your favourite Batman? Um, I think you can learn a lot about somebody by who their favourite Batman is. What would be the wrong answer? Well, it's not necessarily a wrong answer. Oh, well, no, there is actually, because if somebody said Val Kilmer, then there's clearly something wrong going on there. And there'd be a series of questions. We would start with, do you have a dog? Then, is your dog with you? Then, can I pet your dog? <laughs> <laughs> um, if they answered no to, is your dog with you? And then the next question would be, can I see photographs of your dog? Um, and it'd also be the same series of questions, but for cats. Oh, yes. Oh, so you're like a dog and cat person then, essentially. Yeah. Are you indifferent to Marmite as well? I am, actually, yeah. It's, it's all right. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and, of course, the most important question. Are you now, or have you ever been, a member of a ska band? Right, and what, what answer would allow you into the country? No. Preferably, in addition, I fucking hate ska. Or perhaps a violent indignation at the suggestion that you might have been in a ska band. Yeah, if you ask the questions, then I'm just sick into my hands. And that's the response. Then you'd be like, well, <laughs> fine, crack on. Um, uh, I, I, so I, I wouldn't be allowed into your country, Chris, because I'd, I'd, I'd... Oh, no. What a shame. Well, my hands are tied, Piper. Sorry. Nothing I can do about it. I wish it were different, but... That's the law, sorry, bye. 
If, like me, you grew up in the 90s with Pogs, Tazos, Backstreet Boys, John Major, the Barbie Dreamhouse, Gel Pens, Spirographs, the original My Little Pony, Live and Kicking, Getting Up at 7am even on a weekend, Lucky Charms and Shag Bands, then you may well enjoy this next fact. Take it away, Chris, then bring it back, otherwise we'll have dead air. The Spice Girls were accused of witchcraft. The Spice Girls were an amazing all-girl popular music group off of the 90s. Uh, they sang about girl power and other feminist things. Uh, back in the history times, this sort of talk would definitely go hand in hand with accusations of witchcraft. And considering how little the world has actually progressed since then, it's hardly surprising these accusations are still being thrown around. I love the Spice Girls. What specifically made people think they were into doing witch stuff, Chris? The accusations began almost as soon as the Spice Girls rose to prominence when some weirdos believed that the nonsense phrase from the group's first single, Wannabe, Zigazig R, was some sort of incantation uh, that was being cast every time the song was played. Right, so their first single, Wannabe, wasn't it? That was that, was that one. Uh, that's why I said, yes, the group's first single, Wannabe, yes. Good, yes, yeah. So, I mean, that. so that bit, that bit, uh, it, it, um, it comes at the end of the line, it... If you really, really, really wanna, and then zigger zigar, uh, I think it was a, a a parody on censorship or a comment. Sorry, a commentary on censorship. So they were, um, they 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 go. If you really, really, really wanna, and so they they draw out that line as much as possible, um, and and so by the end of it, you're thinking they're definitely going to mention sex at the end of this line, and then they just make up a word because it's the nineties and they can't say have sex with me that's the that's the that's the that's what i got from the the song anyway and and yeah it is a nonsense word but it is in place of uh a come on basically um and and, and uh, you know is is uh, otherwise they'd have to just bleep it out so zigga zigar is fair 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 enough i guess so it wasn't so much their new age equality based belief system that the general populace of the 90s feared it was their nonsense lyrics uh, was this where the apparent evidence of their witchcraft ended, Chris? No, the apparent evidence grew as the group's popularity grew. At the height of spice mania, not to be confused with the phenomenon of over-seasoning your food, these nutjobs were convinced that the Spice Girls' whole discography, namely their two albums, Spice and Spice World, constituted a complex musical sigil. In addition to Zigazigar, the Spice Girls' apparent sonic sorcery included the phrase to become one, which was believed to be some kind of alchemical maxim, like as above, so below. The nonsense words in If You Can Dance uh, were believed to be a complex incantation and not just Spanish, which is what they actually were. And the command stop right now was believed to be some kind of magical directive. Right. I, I feel like these these lyrics are maybe slightly taken out of context um, or at least misinterpreted because people don't know Spanish. Um, I mean, I don't know Spanish, but like I know what Machico should. Ch- no, actually, I don't. I don't even know how to say it. Um, I, <laughs> so so uh, the 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 the. the um, like the, the the feminism stuff that they push push forward like a lot of the time in their in their in their song lyrics because they're all about girl power aren't they Chris? Did the feminism come into play at all, or was this just all just a case of you know like we don't understand what they're saying, so it must be a little bit witchy like. Well, men's rights groups 
are latched onto the belief as it meshed with their idea that women are trying to subjugate men, as evidenced by the Spice Girls' repeated declarations of girl power, which was seen as some kind of threat to man power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that I mean it's unsurprising that the men's rights activists would weigh in at some point because, like, that's right within their fucking remit, isn't it? Oh, let's just let's just let's just accuse women of witchcraft because. They have they exercised some kind of power over the patriarchy. Fucking bullshit, isn't it, Chris? Yes. Yes. Now, uh, Spice Girls disappeared for a bit, didn't they, Chris? They went, they fucked off, and everyone got sad. Even Americans, they they got really sad for a little bit because um, they were like, oh, they 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 were they were great. The spice the spiced girls. Uh, did everyone forget they thought they were witches during that time? Uh, well, the accusations did fade after the group went on an indefinite hiatus in 2000. But rumours did continue to circulate and saw a resurgence during the Spice Girls 2019 world tour. This came as no surprise because the internet had happened in the intervening years. And if there's one thing the internet really hates, it's women. What do we know what people thought the band's occult agenda actually was? There were numerous theories, as there always are with this kind of weird conspiracy shit. Some people believe that the magical words and phrases embedded in the Spice Girls songs were designed to increase their popularity. And of course, the massive popularity of the Spice Girls in the late 90s was taken as evidence for this. Some thought it was the empowerment of women. And again, the group's runaway success was taken as evidence for this. The men's rights activists who bought into all this believes that the purpose of the Spice Girls' musical sigil was to alter the fundamental nature of reality so as to not only establish a global matriarchy, but also so that that matriarchy had always existed. Oh, so basically rewriting the timeline? Yes, yeah. Sick. I mean, if anyone's going to go for go for, fucking try and do that sort of thing, you've got to let them have it, man. That's cool as fuck. Uh, but aside from that, like, I I think like you've got to look at the music industry as a whole as well. Like, it's not like the Spice Girls making these decisions. Surely, it's like some fucking record label. So it's probably like a capitalist agenda, really. If it is anything, which is probably not. Yeah, because capitalism was really struggling in the nineties, wasn't it? And they really needed something to. Uh to get them back on track. They really were the underdog, weren't they, back then? I mean, their main rival, communism, Russia, had just collapsed. So that was a sure sign that they weren't doing anything right. So they really needed that boost, isn't they? Did those capitalists, are uh, those poor capitalists, when will they catch a break? <laughs> So are you suggesting that it was just the Spice Girls who were the feminist agenda and not and not some record label trying to push some some weird thing that they already have, which is money? Well, what I'm suggesting is that this is something people believed was happening, but wasn't actually happening. Oh, so none of it's real. Zigga Zagar just was Bozilux. I'm going to ask the important question now, Chris, that everyone's thinking about. Who was your favourite Spice Girl? Ginger Spice. Ginger, ginger Spice, Jerry Halliwell. Yes, because conceptually speaking, she's the only one who would actually function as a spice in a kitchen scenario. 
Fucking of course. A scary spice would either be a spice that would make your food scary or a spice so scary that as you reach for the jar, you would be overcome with such an intense feeling of dread and terror, you could never actually use the spice. So that's useless. Sporty spice would make your food sporty, and I don't even know what that would entail. Posh spice, I suppose, could be like a, a fancy spice like saffron or cardamom. So that could be useful, but just posh spice on its own isn't really a thing. So I'm discounting her. Baby spice is problematic because it's either a spice made from babies, like ground up babies, or a spice you use to season babies before you eat them. But ginger is an actual spice. Oh, do you ever wish you hadn't asked the question? <laughs> it's rubbish when great things come to an end, but come to an end they must, and this episode is no exception. Here's the last fact from the Institute this week. Don't worry, there'll be four more next week because this podcast, like the current pandemic, is fucking relentless. You can get your hair cut at a drive through hairdresser's. Right, uh, drive through restaurants were invented to help busy commuters get their lunch without ever getting out of their car. There are many other things you might want to do on your way to work without leaving the car too, though, like getting a book to read in your lunch break, joining a workers' union, or getting your hair cut. As far as I was aware, these ideas were never put into action, though. Are you saying they have, Chris? Uh, yes, I am saying that. Right. <laughs> um, the idea of a drive through hairdresser's had been trialled a few years ago, back in 2010, but didn't generate enough interest to go beyond just trials. Then the Rona happened, and people started to look for ways to provide services in a socially distant manner, and suddenly drive through hairdressers seemed like a good idea again. All right, so paint a picture for me, Chris. Um, it's the pandemic. I'm going, I, want, I want to get my hair cut. It's got a bit long and a bit bedraggled. Um, so um, imagine I can drive. Okay. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Get out of the way. <laughs> Stop it. Right, so I can drive and my hair's too long. That's the scenario. I've, I've, I've realised there's a hair cut place that I can just go to in my car and not get out of my car because of COVID. And that's a thing now. Um, so I park up. What, what's the deal? How does that work? So you, driving Piper were to drive up to the hairdressing station, wind down your window, and the hairdresser would cut the right side of your hair because we in the UK sit on the right side of the car because we drive on the left side of the road. You would then drive off and make a, a U-turn and drive back, scoot over to the passenger seat where the hairdresser would then cut the left side of your head. Oh, okay, so... Right, so there was a, there's a there's a little, a little bit more involved than buying a burger at McDonald's drive-through. This is slightly more involved than that. You have to go once and then go again. Well, I mean, it would be more involved anyway because getting your hair cut is obviously a more involved process than buying a burger. That's true. That's true. That's true. We're not talking about speed here. We're not talking about. I mean, we we are talking about convenience, but we're not talking about just like. Bang, 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 get it in, get it out. Like we're just like, you know, like like with fast food. It's the drive-through and the convenience that we're talking about here. So it may take a while, 
but you don't have to get out of your car. That's the important bit. So, okay, so you go, you get the left, right, right side done, and you get the left side done, and then fucking drive, drive off. I guess is it the, the whole sort of situation then um, with COVID and it happening now, and they're actually having hairdresser drive-throughs. Has it been popular so far? Uh, they have had some success. Uh, not just because of the convenience afforded by the drive-through model, but because, as you say, of the Rona, and because it requires less prolonged contact than normal hairdressing, and can be done in the open air where there's all that lovely natural ventilation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, obviously, obviously, I feel like I feel like a purpose-built salon would be better. And um, even if even even during the pandemic, I think you know maybe. Just fucking get the salon hairdresser person to wear wear a fucking mask. I mean, that's fine. Well, I mean, like drive-through food, the people patronising these places aren't looking for quality. They're looking for convenience. So if all you want is just a quick trim, then it'll probably be fine. If you want something more involved, then you probably would go to a, a normal hairdresser, as you would if you wanted, you know, a... A good meal, you'd go to a, a proper restaurant. Yeah. Uh, so it's been road tested, as it were. Is it a complete success then? We're going to be seeing drive through hairdressers all around now? Well, there are a few issues, uh, some of which could be ironed out, some of which seem inherent to the model. Uh, the main problem is inconsistencies between the right and left side of a haircut. Because they're not doing it in one go, it means that once you've driven around to get the other side done, it might not end up matching the right side because the hairdresser's forgotten what they did or they don't have a, a, a reference. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, it, it almost takes a, an extra level of skill uh, to get that consistency. Um, so we might see more, like more training for drive-through hairdressers than we might see for salon hairdressers, potentially. Exactly. Yeah, there would be uh, a, an extra level of, of, of training for working in a, a drive-through hairdresser. Uh, one of the other problems is that to maintain social distance, hairdressers can't sweep up the hair that falls off their customers' hairs like they can in a normal salon. So while most of it will fall onto the road, some of it will go into the car. And so patrons of drive through hairdressers can end up with cars just full of their own hair. Right. So so essentially, uh, when, you, when, you go, when you go to drive through hairdressers, you wind down the window and you stick your head out so that they can actually... That the hair goes on the road but obviously because hair is annoying and just gets everywhere if you get your hair cut in your car it will go fucking in your car yeah right yeah yeah and that's annoying that is annoying obviously it's not it's not gonna like damage the car or anything but like you've got to get one of them little rechargeable handheld hoover things and just go around it when you get home and that's really fucking annoying isn't it chris yes it is so aside from uh hairdressers are there any other unlikely drive-through businesses in America, they have drive-through therapists who dispense nuggets of psychiatric help in very, very short sessions. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I, as with a lot of people, have have had therapists in the past, and and you know, an hour is never enough, Chris. I've got to be honest. You know, like you know, talk through your problems, remind them who you are, do your PowerPoint presentation of your life so far. And then, then they just start, they ask you a couple of questions and you're like, well, yeah, whatever. And then, then they tell you, well, go home now, please, because I've got another person. And that's an hour later. If I went to a drive-through therapist, like, I, 
I imagine there'd be a queue of people behind me, as with the normal drive-through. So you've got to get through the stuff really quickly. That's not going to be enough, Chris. I've got to be honest. I feel like that wouldn't go very well. Well, I mean, to play devil's advocate for a moment, maybe it's like you've had your weekly therapy session, but there's just been like one thing that's like set you off that that day. So you just go through the drive-through to get a bit of of short therapy to tide you over till your next therapy session. Oh, it's just like a top-up. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I could go for that. Good. In Rome, the Catholic Church has been trialling drive-through confessions. Oh, bloody hell, mate. This makes perfect sense. Now you've said it out loud, because the confession booth is sort of like uh, drive-through already, but like not on the road. Yeah, it's like walk-through. Yeah. And they have found that most of the confessions made in the drive-through confession are automobile-based like road rage or running a red light or hit and runs. I'm going I'm I'm to finish this segment off by asking a, a very important philosophical question, Chris. Uh, hairdressers of late, uh, of, of, of all, just gen- hairdressers in general, it's not, it's not a new thing. Hairdress, all hairdressers, they've got pun-based names, literally all of them, every single one, Chris. Uh, is this the same for the, the newfangled drive-through hairdressers? Well, it's not true for the current ones. There's only three operating at the moment, and they're called the North Hertfordshire Drive-Through Hair Salon, the Twickenham Drive-Through Hair Salon, and the Bradford Drive-Through Hair Salon. Uh, but if they open more and they want some pun-based names, and I do have some suggestions. I'm not sure how good they are because it's hard coming up with puns that intersect both driving and hairstyling. But I've done my best. Okay. So car coiffeur is not so much a pun as just alliteration. Yeah. I mean, it is technically alliteration, isn't it? Because it's C and then C, but also the second word sounds like it starts with a Q almost. But you're on the right track. Thanks. (laughs) Maybe this next one will be more to your exacting standards. All right. Cutting corners. Oh, oh, I like that. Because cars corner, but also there's cutting involved. No, that's good. That's very good. That's very good. Although it does slightly sort of degrade the, the business. That makes it sound like they're a bit half arse here. Yeah. <laughs> on a similar vein, on corners not being half arse. Hairpin turn. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I mean, it's one of those puns where once you've heard it, you're like, well, that's fucking obvious. I could have thought of that, but I never would have thought of that in a million years. Um, headlights. It was like highlights, but it's headlights because they're the lights on cars. They are the lights on cars, Chris. That's correct. I mean, I'm not really into cars, but I'm pretty sure that's true. And one that kind of only really works for one particular thing that hairdressers do, the Italian dye job. Oh, right. No, yes. Yes. Because if you take out the word dye, which is uh, what you can do to hair, one of the things that you can do to hair, then it's just the Italian job. And the Italian job is a film about cars. Yes, it is. It is a a film about uh, Mini Coopers doing crimes. Yes. And then there's a bit where Michael Caine tells someone to to remove the doors from a vehicle. Uh, well, no, he tells them that he only wanted the doors removed. But in their exuberance for explosions, they'd removed the entire car from the car.
that's it that's the end of this episode of chickens can't see cubes the piper doors i can be found on twitter at piper talks and christopher parr from the munchausen institute i can be found on twitter at trilby norton and the institute can be found at muinfoto ray ray m-u-i-n-f-o-t-o-r-e-r-e you can also contact the podcast on twitter at c cubes that's s-w-c-u-b-e-s and facebook and instagram at chickens can't see cubes if you have friends and they don't know this podcast exists you have failed as a friend thank you for listening to chickens can't see cubes and remember we probably could have made it up but we haven't honest and we'll catch you once again on next week's show goodbye everyone goodbye Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've actually seen that in like a, a mob interaction thing on a film. Do you fuck my wife? A mob interaction thing in a film. I don't know stuff, Chris. Remember that. That's the best you're going to get out of me. Okay. Right. Well, if that's the case, then there's no point pursuing it, is there? No. <laughs> I'm glad we had this interaction so that we could get to the bottom of it. This mob type interaction. <laughs> Oh, I've just summed up my entire mean like meaningless existence on the podcast. Thank you.